What's up, my miners of intelligence and consciousness? I'm Rick Brooks, and this is Rick's Mind. This week, I sat down with the host of the China History Podcast, Laszlo Montgomery. Enjoy the show, folks. Laszlo, thanks for doing this, man. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Anytime. So you are the host of the China History Podcast, and I just discovered this. I'm a history fiend, and I listen to a lot of revolutions, um, Dan Carlin, Hardcore History, and I haven't been able to find – Daniel Benelli just left Spotify Mm -hmm. uh, to, to go to Luminary. And I was like, I need another history podcast. And I found the China History Podcast. And I found Laszlo. And here I am. Here you are now. So, I mean, I guess what I want to do is get started. Like, how, number one, you speak fluent Mandarin, correct? Mm hmm. Okay. Yes. And so, if you want to kind of take us through kind of the beginning, like you, you graduate college, move to LA, and then you get a job. And you moved to Hong Kong. At this point in time, are you fluent in Mandarin in the 80s? You know, I graduated. It was my degree. So I spoke it poorly, I would say. I had a foundation. Mm -hmm. What really did it for me was moving out to Hong Kong. Now, in Hong Kong back then, this is pre-1997, before the handover to China, it wasn't the best place to study Mandarin because they speak Cantonese there. Oh, no. But for the nine years I was out there, I worked for two Hong Kong companies, and I was the only non-Chinese in the in the company. Oh, wow. And, 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 and they were big companies, publicly traded, you know, not small factories. Mm. They were huge. And in order to communicate with my colleagues, I had to speak Chinese. I had to write my memos in Chinese. I mean, most of them did not speak any English, so I was forced to sink or swim. Now, they all spoke Cantonese, which I didn't, Mm -hmm. but I learned to understand it pretty well or enough to survive, you know, day to day. So I would speak to them in Mandarin. Cantonese notoriously speak very poor Mandarin. They're famous for their their Mandarin speaking, (laughs) among other things, of course. Day to day, I had to speak, they didn't understand English, so I had to speak a Mandarin, which which everyone understands. So it's sort of the lingua franca in China, and pretty much everybody understa- at least understands it. So I spoke Mandarin, they spoke Cantonese to me, so that's how it was for for all the time out there. Okay. And that's how it, that's how I got my fluency. And of course, constantly, three, four days a week, I'd have to go cross the border and go into China and deal with the factories, take customers there. And those guys all spoke Mandarin. So that's what really did it for me, those nine years. And then for the past 20, I worked for a company in Ningbo, which, uh, you know where Ningbo, you ever heard of Ningbo? Yeah, I I have not. It's like the size of LA, but yeah. that, that's that's one of the things that is crazy about China is there are massive cities all yeah. over the place that no one knows about. No one's heard of them, you know, and they're all like uh, they're all like the size of Chicago, but they're you, you just never heard of them because a city with a million people, there looks like a dime a dozen there. What was the question? Uh, I was just asking you about the journey. And you, <laughs> no, it's okay. It's okay. And yeah. and how you became fluent. And you kind of left off at... Yeah, with this company. I just left them. 
Yeah, the, the English wasn't their specialty. But, um, uh, you know, 20 years with these guys, speaking to them every night, and that's what really kept it nice and fresh. You know, I'm in the L.A. community. I am involved in a whole bunch of things. So I speak it almost every day oh, that's in one good. form or another. And I read certain newspapers and blogs and what newsletters. And so I stay fresh. Oh, that's good. I have a, one of my really good buddies um, went on a trip to Hong Kong, actually. And he met somebody and he's like, you need to learn Mandarin. And he's like, why? And he's like, if you learn Mandarin, you'll make a lot of money and you'll be able to travel the world. So he got that stuck in his brain. And he ha- he's up to, I think, seven or 800 characters right now. He's like, you have to learn to write it first. And then, then I'm going to learn to speak. And I was like, well, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to talk to Laszlo. He's, he's, he's the you, only you don't need the characters. The characters, to me, is the best part of the language. Mm-hmm. I, that's probably, if I, when I think about it, going back to primary school i mean my earliest single digits i always had this fascination with china and i think i have this theory that i think it was the chinese characters something about that just sort of grabbed hold of me and Mm -hmm. i was like wow (laughs) (laughs) i mean even today 40 years later when i'm you know uh, just on the streets or whatever and i just see Chinese characters and I read them and I just go, wow, I can't believe I can read this stuff. (laughs) Yeah. uh, But you don't really need that because they're characters. It's not an alphabet. You have to learn to speak the language independent of the characters. So pinyin is more important than characters, Uh, you know, for for, for learning. So, uh, but yeah, it's it's cool. Uh, the char- Chinese characters. I mean, no wonder people are tattooing them all over their bodies. <laughs> uh, it, they're, they're great. I mean, it's 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 really fun. So, if it comes to expressing oneself, do you think that Mandarin or English is better for expression? I've always wondered this. I don't know. I couldn't answer that. <laughs> I, I know how to do it in English, but. Uh, expressing myself in Mandarin, I'm not as fluent as I am in English. So for me, I mean, obviously, uh, yeah, you get it. English, but Chinese language is lacking for nothing in terms of expression. So I, I think it's probably a toss up. Who's got better curse words? Cantonese. <laughs> <laughs> They're the kings. Oh, they really? Yeah. Oh, man, they are colorful. <laughs> they are colorful. I love them. I, I used to know some great, uh, some people who taught me a lot. They, they really <laughs> knew how to express themselves, but um, it's not very polite to use it uh, in your daily life. So I got you. You got to steer clear of that. You got to be, you got to be careful. You never know who's, who's listening or who's, who can speak. You know, I bet yeah. you've, you've probably surprised a lot of Chinese and Cantonese people by maybe understanding what they're saying or being able to talk back to them. Yeah, constantly. That's that always happens. Although today, more people are speaking Mandarin in the United States or studying Mandarin than ever before in history. So, you know, it used to be something rare, but not anymore. But, but you know, still uh, on both sides of me where I live, they're both Chinese. And when they both moved in and I went up and started uh, talking with them, they were like, what? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. 
Oh yeah. That's, I mean, that's, and that's, I'm glad that that's happening, especially with kind of the tensions between the United States and China occurring. It's good that we have people studying so that we can understand things from their perspective. When I was in college, um, Actually, I had him on the show a long time ago, uh, Thomas Graham, who was a nuclear nonproliferation uh, activist and lawyer. He was telling me, he's like, we need people to study Russia. We needed that in the 60s, 70s, and especially the 80s uh, to read their literature, to understand maybe where they're coming from so that we wouldn't go to nuclear war. And I think that that's good that we have a lot more people nowadays studying um, the, the Mandarin language and, and Chinese culture. And I think that that's one of the reasons why I was drawn to your podcast, because I look at history to kind of make sense of the world that we're living in. Why things are the way they are can really be explained through looking at the past, past, past wars, past uh, legislation and whatnot can really, it really does wonders for bringing me up to speed on where we are now. Yeah, it's so important. You're so right there. Uh, Not enough people study history. And as uh, George Santayana said, you know, the famous words, those who don't study it are condemned to repeat it. But it's good. There's all these history podcasts out there, and I think it's more accessible than it's ever been. And a lot of these history podcasts that are out there most of these people are, these hosts, they're, they're like me. They're not academics, and uh, they have a passion in presenting whatever it is that's their specialty. And, and I think more people are listening to it than ever before. So it's really important, especially uh, uh, with China. Uh, absolutely. And I want to get into that. Believe me, that is one of the reasons I, I reached out to you is because you have a very I've, – I've looked at that – I looked at I look at that from a very Western principle, Western understanding, never been there, never going to see. And we're all whether we want to like to admit it or not, there's a lot of propaganda that goes on. Right. And <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> just a, just a, just a touch. Um, but the only experience I have, like from the Chinese perspective, really is not even from the Chinese perspective. It's like from the Mongol perspective, like through Dan Carlin and the and the and the and the wrath of the Khans. And you're, I'm learning about this this ancient civilization slash empire and how they carved all the the resources and they took a lot of the intellectual capital from the Chinese and incorporated that into the Mongol fold and were able to conquer. Right, and one of the things, and I'm just scratch the surface of your catalog and it's really interesting to be learning about all these different dynasties 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 i don't know dynasties unless you're a brit are you a brit (laughs) and you could say dynasty all my british (laughs) all my uk listeners probably cringe every time they (laughs) they listen to my uh show it's like oh just say dynasties. The dynasty, yeah, I know. I was confused <laughs> for a second. I don't know. I've got to be trying to sound smart, but but um, I guess the real question I want to get into the podcast too is like, what was your inspiration for starting this podcast? And uh, also, like, you're at such a huge advantage because you're you're an American and you are able to read Mandarin. So you can you don't have to wait for any of the translations of any of these texts because there's a lot of Chinese history that just hasn't been translated. So like in my opinion, like you got the number one Chinese history podcast on the planet. 
And I just want to know kind of what was your inspiration for getting it started and, and for also sticking with it for so long a decade, man, that's, that's impressive. 11 years. Yeah. In 2010, when I started it, podcasting was just like a couple years old. Actually, podcasting has been around in, in, in its embryonic form even before that. But around, I think, was it 2008 when the iPod came out? I think yeah. it was. Something like that. But when it, it started to take off around then, it really started to get traction you know, of course, Dan Carlin was a huge inspiration. Mike Duncan was a, was a huge inspiration. I mean, those two guys, you know, really inspired a lot of history podcasters. Dan Carlin's in Oregon. He is. He's a, he lives in Eugene. I've tried to get him on the show oh, several times. I'm going to keep I could, trying. <laughs> I can't even get him to answer. He, 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 he responds to my tweets every now and then. But oh. yeah, he's... Uh, He's the Paul McCartney of, uh, of podcasters. Are you kidding? Or history podcasters. He's, he's huge. He um, but he was a big inspiration. And, but there was another show. There was this guy in uh, Kansas City. Mm -hmm. And he's still podcasting, but he, he doesn't have an RSS feed. I think he podcasts from his Facebook. I don't know what he is. But he, he, if you look him up on any podcast player, you can't find him. The guy's name is Bob Packett. And his show was called History According to Bob. And <laughs> what he was, I mean, being a Midwesterner and all, I totally relate to him, but he was very, oh, he was originally from Baltimore, but he taught high school and junior college history, sort of like general world history, American history, for his whole career. Mm -hmm. So he's a teacher. And he's, a, he's, he's a little bit older. He's probably about, I don't know, five, 10 years older than me. He's a real character, a very folksy kind of a guy. And so he, he'd come on, he had these shows, and just every, every week was a different topic. And sometimes he'd do a series that would be multiple episodes. So I'd listen to this guy. He just would come on and say, the Battle of Kanai. And then he'd just start rapping and going right into the subject. And I said, wow, this is great. And, you know, I don't know, the more I listened to him, I said, God damn, I can do this. I can do better than this guy. And I said, why don't I, and nobody's doing anything on China yet, why don't I do what he does and just sort of do a China history podcast and see how it goes. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. So I started it and I copied that guy. I copied his format. Mm -hmm. So I would just, you know, come on and uh, say, oh, you know, Chincher Huang and he was this, the, you know, I go on and I, and I copy his format to the point where, you know, he didn't have any mute, no intro, no outro, just nothing fancy, no frills. And that's how I, and they were about 15, 20 minutes per show. So that's what I started off with. Yeah, I did that. And then it sort of got longer and long, the shows got longer and longer and longer. Then it wasn't, I stopped sort of, you know, sort of copying him. And now all those old shows where I was copying my my main inspiration, I go, oh my God, I got to get rid of those things. You know, there's so many of them that I deleted from the back catalog and just sort of made them over. Yeah, those early shows, uh, I knew even less than I know now about uh, how, to, how to podcast. <laughs> those were really rough shows. I... But, can relate to you 
uh same very, thing for you oh no well i'm we're we're still relatively very very new well, i've been doing this off and on for like three years but during the the pandemic i kind of had to come to jesus moment with myself and it was like what did he say <laughs> he said it's, it's it's time to shit or get off the pot you're either going to go full into this and and have a posting schedule and start actively trying to find guests and you're going to fuck up. It's going to be terrible. We're what just about 50 shows in and mm. you're going to hate all of the old stuff and, and currently to the stuff. But I mean, my, my journey into this realm was hearing the Tim Ferriss show and the Joe Rogan show and me a light bulb when I was like, Oh, I want to do this. I want to be a part of all these conversations. I want to talk to enlightened and intelligent people. I want to, how do I do this? And it was like, I mean, I really don't know how to do it. I'm just, I'm just shaking a bunch of trees and seeing what, what falls down, what I could pick up, you know, that's what I'm doing. And so it's a, it's a, it's a process. It's, 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 but it's, it's, it's fun because through all this, I'm expanding my social circle and I continue to learn things. So I learn best through interacting with people and trying to put myself in other people's shoes. And then if my listeners learn something, then it's a double win at the end of the day. So it's taken me places, you know, most of the people I know today, you know, I have my little core friends back in Chicago. That's a very small circle. Everybody I know today I've met in the last 10 years, you know, the people that uh, I talk to the most and are most involved in my life and that I interact with, they're all people I've met through podcasting, through China History Podcast. It's been the greatest thing. And now my kids are helping me out with it. Yeah, my daughter, my oldest child is your age. Are you 29? Mm-hmm. I just turned 30. Oh, congratulations. Uh, thank you. No. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it's something to, to, to do with my kids. And you know, we have a lot of fun doing that. Yeah, it's a, just a great experience. I love doing it. Now I do it full time. You know, I'm not encumbered by some job. It's, it's the best. I got three shows. Three shows now. Yeah, yeah. You have um, what? the Tea History podcast. Yep, I, I, I launched that in May. So mm-hmm. uh, tomorrow is what? Tomorrow's Wednesday. So I have the sixteenth episode coming up on that. So that'll run for about twenty shows, and then I'm going to turn it into an interview format if I keep it going. And then I have, uh, well, it's not a new show. I've just relaunched it. I started back in 2016, 2017, the Chinese Sayings Podcast. So I take all these old ancient Chinese sayings and give the story, give the backstory and the history about how they they came about, what's the English equivalents and how to use them and, and whatnot. You know, Chinese have this, they call them chengyu. They're usually four characters long. And in four characters, if you know the backstory, it just, it's like two paragraphs of information in four characters. And it just, you know, if you, if you, if you got a lot to say, but you don't have a lot of time to say it, you know, you just use these things and they're just beautiful. It's another beautiful part of, uh, of uh, the Chinese language are these Chengyu, these uh, Chinese sayings or idioms. I did it for 30 episodes and then I put it on the back burner and then I just relaunched it last week. Yeah, go check that out if you want to get started with your uh, Mandarin learning. 
I'm definitely, I might have to check that out. I got, I, I'll make time for that. That sounds awesome. Yeah, now, it's I, for whether you speak the language or not. It's a fun show. They're like eight minutes long. Definitely. So what, what, are you kind of like a, a Dan Carlin guy where you have, you have kind of ideas and then you riff on them and keep going? Are you more like a Mike Duncan, which is, it's all written out. It's very structured. And you just go boom, boom, boom. Mike Duncan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'll usually have a very tight outline for when I'm presenting the material. That's, and I kind of figured I heard, I, I, it, it, even though I'm very, like, I think I'm on episode like 30 or something like that. It seems like it's very, just a very tight outline. Like you were heavily influenced by Mr. Duncan himself. And I, yeah. I definitely hear a lot and you definitely, you're doing, you're doing great. I, I love, I love the show so far, but um, kind of, and how, I mean, how often are you, you posting these? Every other week. So I'm just about, I just this past Sunday, a couple days ago, I posted my 281st episode, which is I'm in the middle of introducing the Taiping Rebellion. So every other week, and you know, each show's about a half hour, 40 minutes. I, I did a history of Xinjiang that was 12 episodes. Oh, wow. And I've done others that are 10 episodes, some are eight, some are two. So, you know, when you listen to the China History Podcast, you don't have to start at the beginning and go all the way forward. In fact, I prefer people not to because those early shows are, <laughs> to me, I, I, they're so cringeworthy. You know, when I get, even on my YouTube channel, because you could access everything on my YouTube channel, uh, and, you know, in addition to, you know, through a podcast player. And uh, yeah, every time I get people saying, oh, wow, this is fantastic. And it's like, oh. Man, <laughs> those are the worst ones. <laughs> well, but, uh, but a lot of um, people, for me personally, um, you know, it's good to hear everyone improve. That's what I, I did. I did with Mike Duncan, right? With the history of Rome. I started from the very beginning and just plowed through the, the his whole series and he gets better. So that's part of the joy for me is to listen to your show and how it evolves, right? Maybe I don't know if you're again in the beginning. I don't know if you have sponsors yet, but pretty soon some of these guys start getting sponsors and the show. Maybe they start adding music, and it's pretty cool. I, I, that's one of the things that I find most enjoyable about it. Yeah, yeah. I still don't have music though, but I will. I will one day when I get a producer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know that's that's. Uh, I'll steal John from you. <laughs> that's that's. I mean, I'm still waiting on music. <clears throat> John, just uh. <laughs> uh, uh, um, I we had until episode fifty, correct? I believe this this will be like forty nine. I think. I got I got, got three time. weeks. I can He's... I can give you some Phil Collins type things in three weeks. Okay. Sweet. Yep. Uh, he's a very talented, man. I love you. Shots fired, though. But uh, one of the things I definitely wanted to get into is the rising tensions. And I kind of wanted to get the time that you spent over in Hong Kong and China. I mean, for, for me as a Westerner, right, I'm I'm looking at it communism's bad china's taking over everything they're colonizing africa like what's going on in the you know we we, we india's moving 50,000 troops to their border the the united states has got the, excuse me we're, we're using pilots on british carriers to fly combat missions we've got japan 
that just included China or Taiwan in their defense perimeter. Like things are getting really heated uh, over there. And I want to know, in your opinion, do the Chinese people like are they okay with their government? Like, do you have any insight on that? I have my circle of friends in China, people that I know over the years, and people I know, not very positive things to say about their government, but they don't really care because their lives are pretty normal and they don't really like the leadership. They hate the party, but it's sort of like, you know, it's out of sight, out of mind. So that's sort of like how it is there. There's just sort of one general rule in China. If you just sort of follow the rules, don't criticize the government, don't criticize the party, be careful what you say, eh, you know, you're pretty much okay. No one's going to bother you. Yeah. Yeah. The, and that, and, and that, those are rules to definitely live by because if you do start criticizing the party, like you kind of just disappear for a little bit. Sometimes you're found it, out instantly. You cannot. Yeah. You know, unless you're whispering to a friend somewhere where nobody will hear you and you could trust this friend, they can hear you through your phones. There's no escaping the party. You know, they, the, the, uh, I would just heard, uh, what is it, a couple months ago on these smart TVs, people in their homes were being monitored. Jesus. <laughs> they didn't even know it, but their TVs were listening to everything they were saying. And it's all pervasive, even Orwell didn't think this much, you know, didn't, didn't, you know, I think if George Orwell came back to life, he said, here, look at what's going on here. here go, oh my God, this is worse than 1984. I don't know. I talked to people in China. They're happy. They're okay. <laughs> yeah, they're happy. The Central you, Intelligence yeah, Agency. I, I just lost control. That that's, you know, from an, Amer- an American point of view, like that's terrible, you know, but I can't in good conscience say, and you know, Edward Snowden, right. We were mm-hmm. doing the same exact thing to our citizens. Yeah, I mean, well, I don't know. We're not as bad as no. uh, in China, but uh, as uh, President Trump said, <laughs> we're not so lily white either. <laughs> so uh, it's um, that it's that's fascinating. Do you, in your opinion, do you think that there will be some sort of like conflict with China in the future? Yeah, I uh, I hope something happens. There are certain flashpoints that are just so volatile. Anything could happen. You know, I think this is all leading to hopefully, you know, we'll go all the way to the brink and then Xi Jinping will meet with whoever our leader is at the time when, when all this finally starts happening and we'll talk it out and find some way to, you know, live not peacefully, but without military conflict. That's, I'm so, I'm not glad that you said that, but it kind of is a bit of a validation to what I've been watching. Because one of the things that I've been saying to anyone that will listen is all this identity politics, everything that's going up abroad is smoke and mirrors and it's complete bullshit and a waste of your time. What we're fighting over are these shipping lanes. And everybody, every it, the whole world is mobilizing quietly to the South China Sea. And it's so disturbing. Like if you look at her Humvees now on the I-5 corridor, 
they're no longer desert. They're no longer that tan. There's forest green right now. So like, what is, I mean, these are, these are small incremental changes that are beginning to happen. I mean, the fact that we have German, the German Navy is now in the South China fleet. Like I I was mentioning before, India mobilizing 50,000 troops and moving them to their border with China. Um, We have, for the first time in 50 or 60 years, we have American combat pilot, or it, it, uh, air force units or air assets on British ships, all headed to the South China Sea flying. I really wonder like, if it ever came down to it, how would we do that? And that's something that stuck because China is also in the midst of a massive naval buildup and they're investing in a lot of technological advance advantage, advantage technological um i cannot think of the word whatever technology naval based technology right they've got a bunch of super carriers and demarco pulls some of this up i might i might be playing fast and loose here with the rules but um and i am concerned about it one of the things that some of the i don't know if it's a joint chief of staff or some lecture i was listening to is like we do not know what their supply capabilities are and that's where wars are won right it's the supply chain but these are if you look at the way their their society is engineered too, and this is also scares me, it's it's ran by engineers, right? And they listen to these engineers. If you look at the one-child policy, if you look at the, what they're doing with gl- the climate change and that initiative, they just listen to their scientists like, oh, we got to do it this way. You, these The people from the West are right, or we're changing everything now. Like they can do things because it's, it's so tightly controlled. They can they can pivot at the drop of the dime. There is no opposition. It is we're it's doing the beauty, this. Now. The beauty of a one party dictatorship. It is you know? as far as our American democracy goes. In 2021, we could see it's a sham. It's 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 it's, it's a joke. It's like a football game. (laughs) And there's so much division. And it's okay to have division in in, in society. But to have the the nature of the division we have today in government and Congress, it's just very counterproductive. And China is just, they're having so much fun watching us flail and suffer. And it's great. One party dictatorship. A benevolent dictator to me, would be the best government. <laughs> a benevolent dictator. You know, someone who could just decide everything, but is not going to lock people up and doesn't, you know, have a secret police that's terrorizing society. But <laughs> yeah, you could see through what, through China has, it's not, a, the CCP is not a benevolent dictatorship, but it's a dictatorship. And whatever they want to do, they do it. And there's nobody, there's no one that's going, oh, well, you know, uh, I'm not on board with this or whatever. You could see in everything they go after. Absolutely. There's no opposition. Absolutely. As long as the party says, this is what we're going to do, everybody lines up and nobody dares diss the party line. And yeah, there's something to be said for that. There is. I would never want to live there. I mean, uh, as an expat, yeah, you know, it's, that's fine. But I'm talking about live there, like move there and live there. It would just break my spirit. But, yeah, I got to hand it to them. They, uh, they have a way of doing things, and it's pretty amazing. 
you know, they're like the United States too. They, they do stupid things as well. What I've seen with my own eyes over the past 40 years, it's just, there's no words to describe it. You know, when I, 1989, when I went to Shenzhen for the first time, you know, it was like this backwoods village. It's now like the second, like the third or fourth biggest city in China now. It's, I don't know how many million, how many people in Shenzhen? It's like seven million or he's going to pull it up. Ten million. <laughs> it's this is giant metrop megalopolis. And uh, uh, Shen- uh, you're, you mean Shenzhen or is it? Yeah. How is it actually pronounced? Shenzhen, Shenzhen. is C-H sound. Okay. It's like a J. Okay, currently, let's see. Current population as of 2020 was 17.56 million. <laughs> and what was and when I saw had? it, not, only 1989. It was a village. That's crazy. Uh, yeah. For Just to go back to the, the stuff about the Navy, I wasn't able to find like content, what you're talking about, of which ships they're building. But some context to it, they currently have the largest Navy with 360 ships, and we have 297. Um, But China's expecting to have 400 by 2025, and the current goal for the United States Navy is 355, which would only be about 50 more ships with no no deadline. It's an open-ended date. But the United States has more tonnage, so we have bigger and heavier armed ships. Uh, we're more equipped. The bigger they are, the harder yeah. they fall. And we're, you know, we're, more, we're more armed, but one big advantage that we have that they don't is most of our fleet, including our entire submarine fleet, is all nuclear. So we have much more expanded range. China only has five nuclear submarines, but they have something like 60 total subs. But I, I do want to I do want to just get into spitballing. We haven't seen a large scale naval war since World War II, right? And then we learned the devastating effectiveness and how quickly thousands of people can die. I mean, mm-hmm. the whole plan with with the Admiralty was to launch all of your planes as soon as you saw the other ship the Japanese ship and hope that your planes and bombers take them out. And then and then if that ship also launched the planes at you, then you're probably gonna get sunk. Like it was mass action. And now with rockets and like who knows? Like fucking hypersonic maybe. missiles. Yeah. I mean dude. it's it's yeah it's not World War II in our rearview mirror is like how they looked at the civil war back in the 1940s. I mean, it's, it's not even the same sport anymore. No, not even close. Like we could probably, the, the United States army now could probably defeat the world war two army and not lose a single fucking person. Like that's the so, level of, of advanced warfare we are. To so U S China relations, which is, you know, friendly U S China relations, which is something I just worked for my entire adult life. This is what we're doing now, talking about, you know, nuclear annihilation and who's got more of this and who's, you know, bigger and better and who would win. And, you know, that's sort of indicative of (laughs) how we look at the U.S.-China relationship. It used to be so benign. That's one of the things, at least when I talk to people here in the States that are, you know, knowledgeable about the relationship. And it's this sort of this feeling that we did so much for them 
over the past, you know, 30 years in terms of cooperating and opening up our universities, our labs, our corporations. And, you know, we what we expected, how things were going to go, that they just always sort of be our good buddy and they'll always be there as a, as a lever to keep pressure on Russia. You know, to see what we envisioned China would be and what it now is. Nobody, I mean, we have all these brilliant people in the State Department, think tanks, universities, and all these, just these brilliant sinologists. And not a single one predicted this, you know? <laughs> so everyone now, and now, of course, see, with China the way it is, there's so many new people coming on stream and so many sinologists, you know, people that were kids back in the 80s are now, you know, working in all the think tanks and in government. They're so everyone's so smart now, but how come nobody predicted that the relationship would fall where it is today? So I'm very disappointed. There's so many smart people that are so smart about China. It's like I feel like now asking if you're so smart, how did things come to this? You know, how come nobody predicted this? Quite a disappointment for me because I just have always was about friendly relations, and you know, I'm not the ambassador, but. I, I'm a citizen ambassador, and everywhere I've gone for the past 40 years, whether it's just people I bump into at an airport or whether I'm part of a delegation for something, I'm just always about building friendship and showing them America's best face, you know, doing what I can to leave a good impression and show them, hey, you know, we love you. We're your friend. You know, now look at things. It's, it's, to me, it's crushing to have dedicated my life to that. And even the China History Podcast, in a way, it's all about teaching people about China so that we could get to know them better. 100%. And know what they're about. Look at their past history, you know, learn about that to understand them better today. And I think if a lot of people did that, you'd find out it's not an ordinary country. And I don't want to belittle any other country, but this is a 4,000-year-old civilization. This this is a 4,000-year-old civilization that gave us gunpowder and influ- influenced several other cultures to, to adopt their writing system. Confucianism, like there are so many things that came from China. Like They have gifted so many things to the world. Uh, Joseph Needham, when you get to that, uh, I think it's a two or three parter, he's started a, a, a book, it's not a book, there's like 27 volumes right now or something like that or 20 volumes. I don't know what they're on right now, but it's called The History of Science and Civilization in China. When you look at what they have discovered and developed since ancient times, a lot of this independently, you know, what our discoveries were in, 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 in the West. I mean, it is just an amazing civilization. And when you look at what the Chinese people in China in our country, the United States, and then overseas Chinese, what they have achieved and where and just the things that they have done for their for the countries that they live in, it's just it's just astounding. They oh. are not any ordinary people. No, one hundred percent, man. You have you have higher education placing limits on i'm i'm kind of broad broad uh, generalizing here but we'll just say a lot of, a lot of chinese students because they chinese korean asian american like 
totally different, but like, let's we're going to use Chinese for the sake of our argument. They're restricting them from getting into these Ivy League education because so many of them meet the qualifications. Like that is the level of discipline <laughs> that is you there. Know, I'll tell you a funny story. My 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 ex boss, when he was trying to get his son into a prep school here in the United States, I took him all over the country. You know, he had appointments at all these different schools, you know, these schools are fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year to go to these high schools. So I took them all over the country. And I talked to all these schools. My, you know, when they'd be in the room interviewing, I I I you know kibitz with them. <laughs> and they said, oh my God, if I see one more Chinese kid that comes here that, that plays two instruments, <laughs> it's got the highest scores, uh perfect SAT, you know, just achieve achieve just a uber achievers. <laughs> this is just a common the, thing there. That's the norm. That's, that's you know, the Confucianism, norm. Confucianism, you know, revered learning. It was just, uh, that's something that just never went away. It's just an incredible culture. It's a beautiful culture. It's an incredible civilization. You know, not everybody's perfect, but uh, they're, they're just uh, incredible. 400 years before Jesus, they were saying, you know, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you and love thy neighbor and whatnot. So, you know, they're, uh, they're worth studying and knowing their history will give you an appreciation of who they are and why it's futile to think (laughs) that, you know, we're going to teach them some lesson. I don't know what it is, you know, and especially the history you know, if I have to say to anybody, okay, look, 4,000 years, you don't want to do that. I can understand that. But at least the last 200 years or the last 150 years, learn that. And you could understand a lot about China today. And, you know, the chip, the, you know, the national chip on their shoulder that they have about, you know, how they were disrespected you know, how they want to make a comeback now. And they want people to, they want to stand up and have people say, hey, you guys are as great as any other superpower in this world. You're as great as the United States or Britain or Australia or, you know, whoever, Germany, whatever. Yeah. That's all they, they want. They want people to say that. And they want to, they want to leave behind those ghosts of the 19th century and, you know, the first half of the 20th century when they were just, you know, they're getting just they shit around. Yeah, they were got They got the shit. They got the shit kicked out of them. And one second, we have to. Th- yeah, we gotta. Sit. Yeah, Let's, Google uh, limits us to an hour, so I, that link that I put up. in the chat, we just need to switch over to the other room to continue. You down? We're switching over. We're, we press pause Your on call this. Call ends in three minutes. Yeah. So okay. Yeah. yeah. So We're, should I just hang up? Or? Right. Yeah. Well, that just link. Click the yeah, up. the link that I posted in the chat. That's the new meeting that I have going. So just follow that, and we'll be over there. What chat? Uh, it should pop up. There's the little chat you, bubble down at the bottom right corner of the. the ah, window. there we go. Yeah. All right. Should I click on that right now? Yep. Yeah. yeah. Go there. We'll leave this one. We'll be over there waiting. I'm I am currently in both. Oh, and you are now too. All right. All right. right, Let me close Zoom here. Okay. So now I'm. And then there. Now I'm in my web browser. There we go. All right. (laughs) Time to continue. (laughs) 
Oh, wow. Now John is on the left. Now I'm and Rick the important is on the right. person. <laughs> there we are. You've gone so, from being a leftist to a rightist. <laughs> you could say it, you, I've been de-radicalized. So, Laszlo, we were talking, do you, do you, we were kind of talking about, uh, before our little pause, do you think that the, the part of the reason for this aggression and this massive, like, massive investment into different countries is because they they don't feel that the west sees them as a world power and that that's the reason for this drive this this need to be number one is because of the past getting the shit kicked out of them by the japanese the british and just getting pushed around and they and they're here to tell us no more you think that's a big driving factor no, no, that's purely economic and for survival. They do that purely for economic reasons. They're not trying to teach us a lesson or show us anything. I mean, what you see speaks for itself. They they just want to dispel those ghosts of, of the past, and they want to be respected unconditionally. One of the worst, one of the best things you can do and one of the worst things you can do just all depends how it's done. It's called patriotic education. I don't know how much you guys are so much younger than me, but when I was growing up, I mean, you know, it, you, you learned a lot about how great the United States was and, and whatnot. You know, in China, they're taught from kindergarten that we are a horrible country, that we are evil incarnate and We've done all these terrible things to, to their country and not only the United States, but to, to, to a lesser extent, the West. And of course, Japan. Uh, yeah, patriotic education, propaganda, you know, what kids are. You, I, I can't even have a conversation with them. You know, for my uh, last year or the year before, before COVID, they sent some kid to, the, to our uh, company to work on some project that needed to get done. They sent this kid, he was like 23 years old and he didn't know shit. And, you know, and I'm talking to him a little about history and about cultural revolution. And this kid, he's like, what people died in the cultural revolution. No, really? What? You know, it's so, uh, it's, they, 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 so they're teaching their children, right. That they're not teaching them the actual historical facts. No, that's they're, they're, the, the vilest propaganda is shoveled down their gullets, and that's what people grow up with. They don't know anything. They don't have access to to anything. I mean, you need a VPN to hop over the firewall, but not everybody's got one. And rank-and-file people don't have these kinds of uh, channels available to know what's going on in the world. They're completely in the dark. Yeah, so that's what we're dealing with. We, you know, now you see, uh, you know, they call them Wumals and tankies and wolf warriors and eh, whatever. You know, these just people that have just bought into the system and they're there to be that mouthpiece for the party and to go out into the world and spew this misinformation, and which is no less vile than what comes out of you know, the two political parties and, 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 and the media and whatnot. It's, you know, we, we're guilty. You know, I don't want to say by how much or who's worse, but it's systemic there in, uh, in China. And yeah, it's really tough. That is tough, man. That I, I didn't know. Well, I mean, I can't say that I didn't know 
I just, I guess I don't think about it. I'm so fixated on the, the war aspect and where all these chess pieces are and what's going on that I fail to think about the day to day average Chinese person that maybe wants access to information or, or is in the know and is trying to not get abducted or killed and kind of spread like, Hey, hey, hey," like everything that our government is telling us isn't necessarily true. And we have the same shit over here, right? Definitely. We have people that are completely brainwashed and aren't awake and aren't able to see alternative points of view and whatnot. I mean, but they choose to, that's a different, they choose to be ignorant. That's true. They're choosing to be uneducated, uninformed, and to just cling to their prejudices and their beliefs and whatever it is that they were brought up with. Whereas in China, <laughs> you have any choice. I mean, what you get is what you get. You know, you turn on TV and you watch the news and you re- read the magazines, you know, that's that's all you have. You 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 don't choose it. It it chooses you. Man. So, uh, you know, that's the, the shame of our nation. And especially with the Internet, where, you know, never has information been more easily accessible to everybody and never in our history have we chosen to be more ignorant of uh, issues, whether it's climate change or, you know, the U.S.-China relations or, you know, or what have you. Or the the genocide that's happening with the Uyghur Muslims or the genocide that's fucking happening in North Korea. We just we I mean, we can't really bother North Korea because that whole regime is propped up by the Chinese. And that's a that's a that's a hornet's nest we don't want to tangle with, you know. Yeah. You know, North Korea, they're just a boogeyman. (laughs) You know, we got to keep an eye on them. But they're not They're When you look at North Korean influence on the United States, I mean, they don't sell anything here. They don't we don't have relations with them. It's it's like a non-issue. But I got to I got to say this for North Korea. Shout out to them because they've got one card. And they've been playing that same card for like 50, well, no, I guess maybe the past 10, 20, 30 years. Like, we're going to get nukes. Leave us alone. We're the best. Yeah. Let them, uh, you know, do what they want to do. They're not really our problem. I think they're no. more China's problem than 100%. our problem. I think it's it's played up. You know, yeah, they're dangerous. Yeah, they they do uh, some damage to us. They have a very good spy network, and you know their uh, c- computer hacking skills. Yeah, they got ways to you know sting us here and there. But it's it's not even it's not even nickel and dime compared to China. China is uh, has much greater impact on us than. Uh, the, the North, North Korea. Korea. Yeah. yeah. Do you do you think that um and this is one thing that I'm I, I worry about like with COVID and and the supply chain, right? And how much we depend on them. Same thing with Australia. They might hate them, but their biggest trading partner are the world's is China. And yeah. the emphasis, right, of pulling beginning to manufacture things in other countries or, or doing it abroad. Like that's also another interesting thing that I, I secretly think that sometimes that is also part of the reason why tensions are rising. Right. Is it's not as cheap to make things in China as it once was because their standard of living continues to go up and they well, continue to ascend. So it's getting more expensive. So if you look at India, India is a willing dance partner, but they're, they're, um, 
infrastructure, thank you, their infrastructure is fucking trash, right? So then we have Mexico that's being developed. We have, oh man, my brains. We have uh, Indonesia, uh, Vietnam, other places that are kind of relatively cheap but might not have the best infrastructure. So sometimes I think that that might contribute to some of the rising tensions. What are your thoughts well, on that? That that was my career for 40 years mm-hmm. was making stuff in China and filling the shelves of Walmart and, <laughs> you know, all the mass marketers mm-hmm. of the United States and yeah, Europe too. Yeah. It's more expensive to make stuff in China now, but it's still damn cheap. I mean, <laughs> you still you look, you look going to Walmart or Home Depot, you know, it's still reasonably priced merchandise. It's mm-hmm. still made in China and in Vietnam, Indonesia, Thailand, Malaysia. Eh, when it says made in Vietnam, trust me, my friend, it's some Chinese guy like my company. And they went and took their equipment and moved it down to Vietnam. It, it, it should just be only should be said made by Vietnamese. That's it. Because the owner of the company's Chinese and uh, you know the management is Chinese, so that's what it is all over the place. They so they're are, they're doing the same thing we're doing to them. They've just moved to some place yeah. where the labor is cheaper. Holy shit! Okay, there we go. Okay, did not yeah. know that. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's that's how it's done. I mean, China has been a manufacturing powerhouse. I mean, going back to the Song Dynasty, probably even before. You know, to the to the to the tenth uh, century, <laughs> China's been like just an incredible manufacturer. Yeah, they know how to do it. It's too late now, but we did. I mean, everything uh, that you know people have said about how we you know just got rid of all our manufacturing and whatnot. We did. It's a stupid, stupid, stupid thing to do, and we did it. And it's too late now. You can't bring it back. It's gone. I, oh, I <laughs> now we are a, we are a huge manufacturer too. Yeah, absolutely. we make a lot of stuff too, but yes. we're not exporting it to uh, China. You know, you walk into any mass retailer. I mean, it's mostly all made in China. Yeah, and you know, India. The thing about India, it's farther away. I mean, mm-hmm. when you're uh, when you, you know, when you know what supply chain logistics. I mean, it is so tight now. It's measured in hours now, not days. I, that, that's that's my that's my current profession is supply chain and logistics. So this whole COVID COVID thing was very interesting. I mean, yeah, there were con- yeah, there were really there were there were containers that 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 people moved for like twenty five thousand dollars to get a spot on a fucking boat. Yeah, that's you know, how crazy a run of the mill container just to get a a forty footer. Here to the West Coast, like seven grand from Shanghai. It used to yep. be like two grand. Yeah, I remember when I, when I was working in, when I was living in Hong Kong, it was, below, it was less than $2,000. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And then when it gets here, it's like, oh, it's got to sit out and wait to get unloaded. Or the logistics industry in the past, uh, since COVID hit, what a stressful, uh, it's been what, a, what a stress test. 
It's been squirrely to say the least, brother. It's been real squirrely. Rates are up. It's 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 wild times. Drivers are making a shit ton of cash, so that's good. But good. Not, not good for me. But <laughs> good good. For, I'm the broker, right? <laughs> that's my. Day you know, job. I man, just you know, before I left this company, I set up a new operation for them selling you know e-commerce. Basically, they went and bought stuff all over China and shipped it to this warehouse. It was like just like a little 60,000 square foot warehouse. And yeah, we had like eight stores on Amazon, a few on eBay, uh, a Walmart.com, Sears.com, Wayfair, everybody. You know, they had like 20 fishing poles in the water, you know, just all day long, just pulling up orders, you know, hundreds and hundreds per day, sometimes thousands per day mm-hmm. of orders. I'd need like five or six FedEx trailers, 53-foot trailers yep. to haul all this shit away. One day's orders. You know, we just we just can't help ourselves. And what's going on now, you know, with e-commerce and how it's when you look at Amazon, it's it's sort of like there for the benefit of China. They had a shakeup recently, you know, they were shutting down a lot of Chinese sellers, but uh, you know, it's we we just can't help ourselves. We're too anxious. You know, I'll tell you what, you want to hear something funny? I would love to. Last year, when they were handing out the COVID checks, remember that? Mm-hmm. That was a bonanza for China. My company would call me every night and say, hey, when are the checks coming? When are the checks coming? Because they knew as soon as those checks came, there would be a spike in in, in sales. And sure enough, it's like, you know, I'd say, oh, okay, they're being, uh, they're going to start, you know, they're sending them out now. Uh, you know, my, my my kids just got their check, and they knew because they knew as soon as those checks hit, boom. There's they wanted to make sure they 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 know. Oh, they're taught they're talking about a stimulus check, and they like stuff in as much goods into those containers and get as many containers into the where I couldn't even I had no space for them in the warehouse. You know, we just had to keep it outside. Because we knew, oh, those COVID checks are coming. They're going to go right to China. And where do you think they went? Damn. We damn. can't help ourselves. We, we couldn't stop it. I mean, these, you look at what the China's uh, foreign exchange reserves and just the national wealth of that country. Mm-hmm. Running at a surplus, not a deficit. How much? How much of our debt have they bought? We're turning this into a bummer cast, and I, I kind of love it. Um, but yeah, they, it's good they, more history. <laughs> this is this is going to be the history that that they tell in fifty years or a hundred years. Say that you know China just sat back and you know put they 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 played a very very long game. Yep. yep. And because they don't have to worry about an election every two years, mm-hmm. they they were able to play a long game. And they once they got everything set up, there's nothing nobody can do about it, and including us. That is what seems to happen. Like we never talk about the national debt and who's bought, who's paid for that, because that's China. It's like it's well, it's, them and a lot of others. Too. A lot I mean, of others. They right. they don't they don't own all our they don't own our all uh, twenty nine trillion. <laughs> but you know the Afghan war and the Iraq war, the wars that have happened, you know, since you guys have been alive, mm-hmm. that's all with paid with borrowed money. Yep. You guys and your kids and your grandkids are going to be paying that off yep. for years to come. Yeah, and and this is the the darker side of of me 
is I was wondering, because I know Afghanistan has a bunch of lithium and a bunch of natural resources. So I was wondering, did we mine any of that? Mine? No, nope, I, I don't think so. We, we didn't. We didn't do shit. So either it was a drug play. Did we get any of the? Did we get the oil benefits, or or was that money just actually paid to Raytheon and other, all these other contracting firms to build infrastructure? But we literally got nothing. As a, I mean, this is all fucked up. I want to say the colonialism's wrong, but if you're going to go to war, we've been doing it forever for resources. We might as well come out ahead, right? We came out behind. We got robbed. We Americans, we, we had our you know faces in front of our computers and watching our sitcoms and our serial dramas and and in our sports and our we care about everything except the things we should care about. And our eye has was taken off the ball. You know, we've been in Afghanistan for so many years. It's sort of like nobody cared about it anymore. It was mm-hmm. just sort of like, well, as long as nobody gets blown up and, you know, uh, nobody gets killed. And uh, do, do you two guys know, have or have any friends or know people that died in Afghanistan? I do not have any, do not know anyone that died. I do have family members that were injured and, and a lot of friends that served. I don't have any, I don't know anyone who's died. Uh, I have a brother of one of my closest friends that served one tour in Afghanistan and one in Iraq. And he, like, he's alive, but he's lost most of his hearing because of, like, he was a, a gunner and he was a cab scout gunner. So mm. he, he was the saw gunner and then he would, they got his uh, truck got hit by an IED a couple times. So, so, so pretty, but pretty I mean, horrible thing. Yeah. I'm trying to think what good came of this. None that we just, we just had a, we just had a discussion about this, this past Sunday, um, trying to think of good. And the best I could do is hoping that like, the the like taste of freedom that we gave like younger afghans could maybe inspire them to do some sort of a revolution down the road but that's like as pollyanna rose colored glasses as i could get like there's really none yeah there's nothing and in the, in the end what we did is we took the beauty of democracy and we just tied it up to the back of our pickup and just ran it through the gravel and just totally wrecked it, destroyed it, made it look like just this horrible, horrible form of government before the whole world. Nothing good came of it. So uh, anyway, are we talking about Chinese history? Or, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, we can't, we can't, can't continue into the depths of the bummer. So I want to kind of pull us out. So I'm going to ask you a pretty a, a positive question, something we can end on. What, in your opinion could we do to improve relations with China? Just a perfect world. What do you think needs to happen so we can back off from the brink? Oh boy. That's, you know, I'm having dinner next week with the consul general uh, at the Chinese consulate here in LA. And I know that question is going to come up over, over Mm -hmm. dinner, over lunch. You know, I almost don't know where to start because so much, you know, how just within a family, once, once these things have been done and said, it, things can never go back to the way they were. And I, and I think that's where we are with China. I think you just need to learn how to coexist. You know, they'll say, ah, you know, we, we seek uh, friendship with all you know, countries, but they're, they're, they are out to destroy us, not militarily, but in the way that they're doing it right now. And you could see it. And, and I, when I say they, 
I'm only talking about the, the Communist Party, but that's that's China. That's who that's who that's the government. The government is the party. I mean, you have the party and then you have the government, but everybody in the government is in the party. So, you know, it's two different it's two different things, but it's the same. And they're out to get us, but we have to find ways to get along and exist and keep up our two-way trade, our cultural exchanges, our educational exchanges. I think one one place that we could start is by toning down, if the Communist Party would tone down their bullshit, call in their wolf warriors, and, you know, Zhao Lijian, Hua Chunyi, and these Hu Xijin, and all these guys that are out there just spewing all this vile filth, you know, all day long on Twitter and you know, wherever all these other channels that we give them to tell us how shitty we are, to pull all those guys back, and then for to do something in the United States to tone it down as well. You know, we are we match them punch for punch with every shitty thing they say about us. We we do the same thing about them. Both sides said in ignorance most of the time. Mm-hmm. The Communist Party is never, ever, ever, ever in one trillion years, is never going to allow the people in China to see the good side of the United States, ever. So, you know, it's like, yeah, if we could just tone it down and we won't do this and they won't do that, but they're never going to do that. Uh, you, you see what it is. And um, so I don't know where to start. Well, it's sort of like we've already lit, we already lit that strip of phosphorus, you know, you can't put it out. You can't like dip it in water and put out that flame. It's, it's, it's just, it's going, there's no way to stop it. So, uh, you know, there's so many flashpoints right now. I just, I really don't know how to do it. It's sort of gone too far at this point. You know, life goes on. I mean, you have thousands and thousands and thousands of Americans that are in China right now. They're studying, they're working and, yeah, I talk to these guys and they're like, what are you talking about? It's great here. Uh, you know, I mean, not everybody says that, but, you know, we're not allowed to see the good side of China and they're not, you know, they're not allowed to see the good side of the U.S. The only people who see the good sides are those that actually go there and find out, oh, these not so bad here. Yeah, you know, gee, uh, you know, the these are nice people and uh, I like them, but. You know, you have to you have to go to China to go find that out. You know, just going back to, to circle back to the beginning. It's it's, it's a beautiful culture, and uh, just some of the greatest people I've known have just become such good friends and me- even mentors to me. And well, I you know there is a silver lining in all of this, right? Tell there me. are a lot of pe- there are there are a lot of people like you. There are Chinese people that are like you that don't want to see that there are people like me that are out here yelling at people to expand their minds and to think for themselves. And that those are the things that pull us back from the brink. I yeah, I try to, yeah. I try to study excellence and I try and study perseverance and, and you embody both of those things. And I, I want you to know that I appreciate you coming on this show 
and, you know, speaking your truth and, and letting it all out and teaching me even more than you have in your podcast. So I wouldn't, I mean, it's not all doom and gloom. Things do not look good, but we can't give up. We got to, we got to be active in our approach. Yeah. And, and these things are important. We're not the decision makers in government. And, you know, there's the ignorance. You know, one of the things I, I didn't tell you, he, Bob from History According to Bob was an early inspiration for podcasting. But what really made me do it was watching C-SPAN once. And I was listening to our own congressmen and senators talking about China. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, these people are just ignorant. They have no idea. They are this. They know nothing about China, and there they are voting on everything that's of such criticality to U.S.-China relations. So that was like, you know, well, I'm going to start this podcast and, uh, you know, teach, just throw it out there for free and let people learn about, you know, to learn about China. And maybe this will, you know, learning about the past might temper their their discourse in, in today. And so I think more education, I, you know, I've written my congressmen, senators, I don't know who, who, how many cold calls I've sent out to Washington and said, let me go, put, put me on the road. I'll go to all 50 states and Puerto Rico, and I will just go around to Elks Clubs and Moose Lodges and whatever and just teach about Chinese history so that people can be brought up to speed and just, you know, have some sort of a foundational understanding so we'll be better prepared to um, – Make deal decisions. with uh, the current relationship and yeah make decisions exactly because so. and I, I admire that because to me it it is one of the most important topics of our time because this is the law and a lot of people do not understand what a large scale conflict looks like we have forgotten that and it's yeah. not pretty and especially yeah. when you have new both nuclear powers involved it's very scary so hey i i appreciate you we're definitely going to do this again um i can't wait to to continue going through your catalog where yeah, can, when you get, when you get up to uh, about the 200s uh i'll get we you could, on again. We could, we'll, we'll come on again and we'll talk yeah. more about history rather yeah. than uh, <laughs> the end of uh, the nuclear <laughs> annihilation or something like that uh, it'll probably turn into a bummer cast but that's okay um, nah. <laughs> but hey, uh, where can people find you? you go ahead and throw your podcast out there again. My website is teacup.media. From my website, you can access everything that I am involved in. China History Podcast, Laszlo Montgomery, wherever you get podcasts. The Tea History Podcast, the Chinese Sayings Podcast, it's all out there. Follow me on Twitter. Teacup Media is my handle, or Teacup underscore Media. Uh, same thing as that's my Instagram handle. Yeah, pretty in my website, you can find everything. That's that's the one stop shopping to uh, to everything I'm doing. Perfect. Hey, yeah. Again, again, I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Laszlo. My pleasure, gentlemen. I'll see you up in Oregon. <laughs> <laughs> All right, brother. Bye.